Welcome to Wyoming Law Pod. Today, my guest is Robertson, a.k.a. Rob Cohen. He's the founding and managing partner of Cohen & Cohen in Denver, Colorado. Cohen & Cohen is a bankruptcy, divorce, and litigation firm. Rob's expertise is bankruptcy. He works as a debtor and creditor's attorney. He is also a bankruptcy trustee, the person who administers the bankruptcy estate. He's administered about 10,000 estates. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified to talk about bankruptcy than Rob. When Rob is not working, he enjoys spending time in the woods with his wife, three kids, and two dogs. He enjoys reading and writing, family time, skiing, fly fishing, mountain biking, and gardening. I've seen the pictures that prove his skills as a fly fisherman are on par with his knowledge of bankruptcy. Rob is here today to give a basic overview of bankruptcy for people considering filing for bankruptcy and for attorneys considering adding bankruptcy to their practice. You may notice some background noise in the podcast as COVID has limited our recording options. And with that, let's begin. Today, my guest is Robertson, aka Rob Cohen. He's the founder and managing partner at Cohen & Cohen in Denver, Colorado. Cohen & Cohen is a bankruptcy, divorce, and litigation firm. Rob's expertise is bankruptcy. He works as both a debtor's and creditor's attorney. He is also a bankruptcy trustee, the person who administers the bankruptcy estate, and he has administered over 8,000 bankruptcy estates. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone more qualified to talk about bankruptcy. When Rob is not working, he enjoys spending time in the woods with his wife and three kids and two dogs. He enjoys reading and writing, family time, fly fishing, skiing, mountain biking, paintball, and gardening. I've seen the pictures to prove his fly fishing skills are on par with his bankruptcy knowledge. And I'm happy to have Rob here today to give us a basic understanding of bankruptcy for people considering filing bankruptcy and for attorneys considering adding bankruptcy to their practice. With that, let's begin. Thanks a bunch uh, for joining us today, Rob. I appreciate you being here. I, um, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. So how is life in Denver in, uh, with the coronavirus? Well, it's definitely unique times. You know, it'll be funny. It'll be funny to look back at hope. Hopefully, it's funny when we look back on this years later. Hopefully, we can think, oh, that was a, such a crazy time. Glad this has never happened again. You know, but uh, we were still working. Right on. You doing any of the homeschooling that they're doing in Wyoming? Or? Yes. Yeah. So. All the kids is, you know, that's they're doing Google Classroom, which has been a nightmare to figure out. Like the kids are missing assignments, their grades were went they were really good, they went really bad, so we had to take away video games and screen time and all that other stuff. And it was I mean, it was it was the last this last quarter was just a waste of time is what it was. Yeah, it seems like overnight the world kinda of completely changed on us. Uh what have you been seeing that's different in the world of bankruptcy? You know, it's funny. I get that question a lot. I do. Um, <clears throat> I would have to tell you that it's it's still so new, right? Like, it's still so new. The people that are calling me are the ones who can see the writing on the wall or those, those type A people who plan for, like, every contingency. We've had, for sure, we've had some increase of of de, of of demand, uh, you know, like spas and gyms and like yoga studios and things like that. But by and large, the average consumer is still at this point in time, only a couple months into it, is still doing okay, right? Because they got unemployment. Maybe they had some savings. You know, maybe they're living on their credit cards right now. And then also too, I don't know what or what it's like in Wyoming, but all the court systems are shut down right now. I mean, there's there's stays on debt lawsuits or stays on evictions or stays on foreclosures and 
there's bills like literally being discussed probably at this moment in time in the state legislature for more stays and more relief and things like that. And so people aren't really feeling the pressure right now. I think it's going to be more spaced out long term. We've seen Weber's um, completely shut down for in-court proceedings. Everything went remote. But anything mm. like conviction hearings and things like that were basically shut down and things are starting to slowly come back online. Yep. But I think we'll see the evictions and things start to pick up before some of the other states. Um, no, I just saw a notice that the federal court is actually going to start trying to do some jury trials here mid-June, whereas the state courts, as far as I know, are pushed out at least until August trying to figure out a system and how to do voir dire and all that. Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's, it's very it's similar here. It's similar in Colorado. I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing is that this isn't, bankruptcy is one of these things. It's kind of like a lagging indicator typically of how things are because no one ever wants to file. So people will hold on forever. So, for example, like the last one we've lived through and worked through was a 2007-2008 crisis, but bankruptcy filings didn't peak until 2011, right? You know, and so, and this isn't. I mean, this is different. And we, I don't, I don't think we still really know the full economic impacts. And you know, it's what June of 2020 now. And you know, politics aside, I don't care who's in the White House right now. During election year, people, they will, anyone, they will do whatever they can to make sure the economy is strong, right? You know, for the election. So I just, I think there's gonna be a lot of artificial things in place like unemployment, state unemployment, federal employment, and you get these COVID bonuses. I don't, honestly, I don't really think we're gonna see the impact for several months and almost certainly not until after the election. But bankruptcies are still going forward right now, aren't they? They are, yeah, people are still filing them. And so there's, I mean, the hearings are all now telephonic, you know, the federal courts are doing well telephonically and the creditors being easy telephonic. Yeah, but they're still, they're still humming along. I mean, what kind of things have gone differently besides the telephonic hearings or is that really the only change that you're seeing? That's, that's pretty much it. Just the, just the practical, practical nature of it. I mean, a lot of cases, well, for example, we're, I'm trying to get a case filed. This is a pre-COVID case. But I, it's, it's a tax bankruptcy, and so we're filing because we need to discharge a bunch of taxes. And taxes in bankruptcy is pretty complicated, so you've got to order tax transcripts from the IRS. Well, you can't order a tax transcripts from the IRS right now because they're not processing tax transcripts. And you know, if you dig into it, you you navigate through to figure out like where's the notice on it. And it says we're not processing them, and we'll we'll restart them sometime in the future. And so these people, in the meantime, though, this guy is getting has this massive lawsuit out of state. And fortunately, that's been saved because of COVID, but that's going to pick up. And so I need to see the tax transcripts to review the taxes, see if they're dischargeable or not before we file bankruptcy. But he's, he's getting pushed. He's about to get a massive judgment against him for some failed business. And so we got these competing timing issues. It's really kind of crummy. That's kind of crazy. And it's almost like the law of unintended consequences. What we're seeing with some of our personal injury cases is we can't really settle them until we know that the treatment is actually complete and done. And so we have a number of clients who have like voluntary procedures who just need maybe one more epidural or one more, you know, visit to finish up their course of treatment. Then we could try and settle their case. And all that stuff just got completely put on hold because voluntary treatment stopped for two months. And now it's months to get back on the schedule to get in because everybody needs to get back in. So I would agree that the consequences we're not going to be able to predict them. We're just going to have to wait and see what they are. Yeah, I agree. That, that's right. That's no argument here. So one of the things, we, kind of the goal of today is to 
educate you know attorneys who don't have experience in bankruptcy, but then also to give potential clients a feel of the bankruptcy process. And I think people come in with a lot of ideas and a lot of misconceptions about bankruptcy. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see people have about bankruptcy? Oh my goodness! I mean, I don't think I can. I can count the ways. I mean, I had a. a I mean, I was just. I'm sort of going on top of my head. I had some woman yesterday was upset because her husband was going to discharge all the child support and alimony that was owed to her. And, and you can't discharge alimony or child support, for example. So I put her at ease on that one. Another misconception is you're going to lose all of your assets. They're going to come in and take everything. Um, no, that doesn't happen either. In fact, you know, I, th- I think the numbers, at least in Colorado, I think like 85% of all cases are called no asset cases, meaning you keep everything and you wipe out all of your debts. Um, you know, most people know that student loans are non-dischargeable, but there's some interesting case law on that. Um, it's on appeal right now, but you know, you gotta tell people, hey, look, student loans are largely going to be not discharged in bankruptcy. And so it's important to tell people that. Um, what does that mean when you say not discharged? Well, so the point of a bankruptcy is to get a discharge, right? And so then that, as opposed to a dismissal, sometimes you have people come in, I've had clients call me up and get mad because they got a discharge notice in the mail confusing it with like a dismissal notice, right? Um, so the discharge, essentially, it discharges you of all of your debts, <clears throat> all of your dischargeable debts. Um, and so when I say something is not discharged, there's a list of things that are not discharged, and student loans is on that list. And that comes up often because obviously we have, I think the next financial crisis is almost certainly going to be student loan-based, but <clears throat> that's I think that can going to kick down the road a little bit. So those child support and those alimony payments, so they fall under that same category? Right, yeah. So that's a list. It's under Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code. And it's, I mean, so, I mean, there's like 20 or 30 of them. The vast majority don't apply. So like examples of things that are not discharged that are common would be like alimony, child support, um, some taxes. Um, There's a criminal restitution, stuff like that. And then you get into this uh, the realm of things that are not discharged only if someone doesn't file an objection. So mostly like student loans, those are there's the non-discharge, <clears throat> the non-discharge is broken up into two categories. There's things that are automatically non-discharged, and then there are things that are non-discharged only if somebody objects. <clears throat> and those are the big ones. So that's like fraud, theft, embezzlement, larceny, things like that. And so yeah, I mean someone someone could commit fraud. And they, as long as they get proper notice, they could discharge a fraudulent debt in bankruptcy if no one says anything about it. I guess it, people kind of have to balance that if they have maybe three or four thousand dollars in alimony, they still may want to file bankruptcy if, say, they have one hundred fifty thousand in dischargeable debt. Yes, and bankruptcy is often, oftentimes, it's funny. You'll see like you know, husband and wife in a bitter dispute, and. I'll, I'll just go with stereotypes here. The husband, say, isn't paying the child support maintenance, right? You know, it has all kinds of child support maintenance. And the wife is the one, the wife's attorney is the one pushing that guy to file bankruptcy because it frees up his disposable income to pay her. And that's not an uncommon thing to do is that, listen, I have all this tax debt. It's non-dischargeable. I need to file bankruptcy to you know, free up some disposable income and pay this tax debt because that's not going to go away. And so that's uh, it's definitely a tool that you can use when people do use. How often do you see people trying to kind of gamble with, uh, say, a debt like a fraud debt or something like that, and hoping that someone just won't object to it? 
It's pretty rare you see that. Those fact patterns almost always come up. It's it, 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 this is this is not a rule of thumb, but it almost always looks something like this. Somebody's been sued in state court for fraud. And you know, it, it the, the spectrum will range from yeah, the guy probably committed fraud, or the guy in state court is just some unsophisticated business owner, didn't know what they were doing, and then they're just getting railroaded by some well-heeled creditor who's suing them for everything under the sun, right? And they can't defend it. And so, but either way, they don't have enough money to defend the state court lawsuit, and they're getting railroaded to state court. And so, you know, it's 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 a legit tactic just to file a bankruptcy and say, look. I'll file bankruptcy. I don't have anything. And anything I do have that's not exempt, the trustee's going to take. And you'll get it, but I'm bankrupt. And do you want to you you bring this over into bankruptcy court from state court and keep wasting money off of, on me kind of thing? Because you're never going to be able to collect a dime. Yeah, that, people will do that. People will do that. And I didn't work sometimes because the creditor is like, look, a person's bankrupt. Why should I spend, you know, Thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees to go after somebody I'm not going to get any money from. Yeah, because in that situation, the lawsuit essentially just goes from the state court to the bankruptcy court, and it's actually a little more debtor friendly than bankruptcy court. Yeah, depending on the judge you draw. Like, you know, there's five judges in Colorado, there's one in Wyoming, and the Wyoming judge right now at present, she shares in the northern Colorado docket as well. Um, and I, I haven't been in front of her a whole lot. Uh, I met her a handful of times at these lectures and things like that. I moderated a table where she was at recently. Um, but yeah, but but you're right because the bankruptcy courts, you know, they're federal judges, and generally speaking, I hope no one's hope no other bankruptcy judges are listening to this. But generally speaking, they're not like overworked and underpaid, kind of like the state court judges are, right? Like these state court judges. I mean, those guys, you go to state court and it's like a cattle call. Like you do a domestic docket or even like a civil return docket. I mean, it's just in and out, in and out. Those judges, they work their butts off and they don't get paid hardly anything. These bankruptcy judges, they get paid a lot more than these state court judges do. And and although it's not a lifetime appointment, you know, they're not graded by a judicial commission. It's the Tenth Circuit that looks after them. As long as they issue decent rulings, they write well, they're not abusive of their power. They can take the time to really think about it, thoughtfully think about a case. And these guys, they're smart. They're all good attorneys. Like the bankruptcy court, they uh, they pay well, so they get good people who become bankruptcy judges. And so, so yeah. So the, if someone's getting railroaded in state court, and they're not, they're going to be much more attuned to that, and they're not going to let that sort of stuff happen in the courtroom. So oftentimes, it's a good tactical move to move it to bankruptcy court. I think that's often true in federal court regularly, too. I mean, the rules are really the rules in federal court. And yes. So true. Like, oh, my goodness. I remember when I used to do domestic and state court. Like, the rules of evidence, like the suggestions of evidence. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it just drove me insane. I'll be like, this is triple hearsay, Your Honor. Like, literally, this is like a question on my evidence exam. I'm going to let it in. Well, look, why are you going to let it in? And the answer is because I know your client's not enough money to appeal my decision. I want to hear it. And so that's why it's going to be let in. And at least in federal court, you don't get that nonsense. Well, most of the time. For sure. No, I agree 100%. Hopefully save face with all the judges out there with that last comment. <laughs> so one thing that I used to see when I was practicing a lot in, uh, in the bankruptcy area was 
there's a ton of not just with misconceptions about what bankruptcy can do, but uh, lots of people have been told things that just aren't true. And uh, the biggest one I saw is people would always call up, and these are usually people who never thought they'd have to file bankruptcy, but they have a, a ton of medical debt, and they've been told by either their friends or other people that bankruptcy can't help with medical debt. What are some of the most common things that can be discharged that you think people, that the misconception out there is that people can't get help with? I, it's everything. Anything that can be discharged, someone has said, I thought you couldn't discharge that. So you fill in the blank. I thought credit cards going to be discharged. I thought medical debt could be discharged. I thought balance checks going to be discharged. I didn't think I could get rid of my car. I thought repossessions could, like, I, I didn't think that the, 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 this the second coming after me on my foreclosed house could be discharged bankruptcy. So literally every kind of debt out there, someone at some point in time has said, I think you could discharge that. And I don't know. And let's let's just talk about that a little bit in, in context of Colorado and, and how can someone keep their car when they file bankruptcy? Well, it's just like any other asset. So like historically, historically bankruptcy uh, when you were, when you went under, someone would, would literally come and like they would they would leave you with like a potato sack as your clothes. They take all of your clothes, they take all of your goods, your cooking utensils, your belongings, and literally leave you like with nothing. Um, that's typically not a good way to encourage commerce and risk taking. You know, if if the risk is going to be destitution and like, just living, you know hand to mouth the rest of your life and never be like, and then and you go back even further, like, you know, debtors prisons and, you know, debtor slavery, things like that. Right. But so historically speaking, that doesn't do much to encourage a capitalistic society. Right. <clears throat> and so the bankruptcy code over time has evolved to provide exemptions to people who file bankruptcy. And the idea behind exemptions is to encourage this fundamental concept of a, the honest, but unfortunate debtor, a fresh start. Because no one's going to get a fresh start if they don't have a car, if they don't have a way to get to work, for example, especially in an area that isn't a metro area that doesn't have public transportation. Um, even, shoot, even Denver. I mean, Denver is kind of a metro area. The public, I mean, to get to work at a Denver, I mean, there's no subway system or rail system. Good to speak of. It's going to take hours to get anywhere around here. Um, and so they leave, they don't take your clothes. They leave you with all the things that you get a fresh start and that's determined by the state that you live in largely at least in Colorado and Wyoming that's encouraged by state law so what they do they allot you exemptions and it's based on category and dollar amount so you get exemptions for household goods for example you get exemptions for clothing exemptions for vehicles exemptions for homesteads exemptions for earnings on and on and on practically speaking though nobody cares about um the clothes and the household goods. Like, I think, I think, I, I think Dan Issel, he's the coach of the Nuggets. I think he filed bankruptcy, or someone who was who was close to the Nuggets at point filed bankruptcy. They cared about his household goods because he had like a fifty thousand square foot house in Cherry Hills Village with a lot of really nice household goods. So, but no one wants my couch with the two dogs and three kids and spilled milk and all that stuff, right? Nobody cares about that. Sure. So how does it work? How does someone keep their car, though? Like, what kind of cars can people keep? Can they keep new ones or just old beaters? Or It just depends on how much they're worth. And so, and so for right now, so let's just say the exemption for a vehicle is $5,000. We'll just make it easy. Um, if the exemption is $5,000 for a vehicle, 
if the car is worth $10,000 and you don't owe any money on it, they would take the car, they'd sell it, they'd give the debtor the five grand, and then there are 5,000 remaining. Oh, there's gonna, not gonna be exactly five, there's gonna be cost of sale. That would then be distributed to the creditors, and the debt goes away. And honestly, if you think about it, I mean, average debt is like 30, 40,000 bucks for bankruptcy. If you pay $5,000 and wipe out $40,000 of debt, it's a pretty good deal. But let's just say, for example, you have that same car, it's worth, $10,000 um, and and the exemption is five. The exemption is five on it, uh, but you owe $8,000 on the car. You're gonna keep that car. It doesn't matter if it's a brand new car. It doesn't matter if it's an old, old car with a lien on it, something like that, because your equity in a vehicle is only $2,000. And so you haven't reached your $5,000 exemption that make any sense? It did. I mean, one example of where I, I saw a client make what I thought was a bad decision, but it, I mean, it's really at the end of the day, it's their choice, but I had a client who had, and this was a few years ago, but it's still mind boggling to me at the time that they had like a $75,000 new pickup truck with a 950 or $1,100 a month payment. One of the things I hope that they would do is, I mean, they basically owed what it's worth. And I was like, you know, going forward, here's your chance to just get rid of this truck and not, and actually I think it was substantially underwater actually, um, you know, and not have this huge um, $1,100 payment over the, hanging over their head, but they they chose to keep it, you know, even though the, the truck was probably worth 70 grand and, and they probably owed 75 on it. And then they kept that, you know, and I thought they would have been much smarter to just let the truck go and, you know, start over. Yeah, probably. And so that happens from time to time is that sometimes you'll see someone that has an outrageous car payment. And it's underwater, and so I mean, you only have to. You only, the exemption doesn't even matter at that point in time because there's nothing to exempt. There's no equity in it. But as long as you keep paying for it, you can keep it. I will tell you, this has been a while, but I remember once I had a case, and it was something like that. It was it was long enough ago where the the outrageous pay was like eight hundred fifty dollars a month. But I had a case, and the U.S. trustee actually objected, and one of the on the to the entire bankruptcy, because the U.S. trustee is kind of a watchdog, and they'll object if they see something they don't like. In that instance, they objected because, like, listen, you have an $800 a month car payment, you know? Like, you could easily surrender that car, pick up a more reasonable payment, which at the time was average, like, 300 bucks a month. Then you have $500 a month left over that you could go to your creditors. You could do Chapter 13, and there are a handful of other things in that case, too. Yeah, so sometimes the U.S. trustee will object. But you know you don't see it as often anymore with U.S. trustee, but they'll they don't like that. They, if they think it's abusive, they'll 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 weigh in. And I think that's another important thing too for people to know. Let's say they have a, I don't even want to guess at the age, but say like a good reliable Honda Accord that's worth, you know, fifteen thousand, and they only owe ten on it. And they have a reasonable payment. But that's almost an ideal situation in the seven for them to keep their car and keep their payment. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. I mean it's. The vast, vast majority of people have normal car payments and they keep the car and they keep paying it and they just call it a day. In fact, actually in bankruptcy, there's something called redemption. And this happens, this, this, is, this happens far more often than the person with a $75,000 Ford Raptor, you know? And so, um, like if the car is way upside down, if you meet certain qualifications, so say you have a car that's worth 10, but you owe like 25 on it, for example, because you traded in some other cars and a bunch of negative equity on it. You can end bankruptcy, you can redeem the car, which is a fancy way of saying you just pretty much strip off that $15,000 of negative equity. 
And so you get a new loan on the car for its value, for its value of 10,000 bucks. Even though the new loan is like a 22% interest, so what? Like you just wiped off $50,000 of debt. It's a pretty good deal for you. People, people take advantage of that. Definitely. And, and you mentioned something when you talked about the, the trustee objecting as uh, someone basically having uh, kind of lowered their disposable income by having a ridiculous car payment. Uh, and that goes kind of back to the question, can people make too much money to file for bankruptcy? Right. And so go, so going back, so the way bankruptcy the way bankruptcy works is that you know you file a bankruptcy, all of your assets, it goes into an estate. So kind of like probate. When someone dies, like all the all the seed and stuff goes into it. This is a fictional estate. They don't come with a U-Haul and take your stuff in bankruptcy. But in theory, everything you own isn't yours, right? And so then there's the trustee. The trustee is appointed. The trustee can go into your estate, and then like we talked about, they can take exempt property. They can excuse me, I cannot do that. They can, they can take the non-exempt property and then they leave you your exempt property. Um, but like we also said, most cases are no asset cases. And it's like, like the practical effect is you keep all of your stuff because it's all exempt and you wipe out all of your debt, um, and which is a really good result. Um, but so there's, but there are tests, there's income-based tests to qualify for that. Um, it's called the means testing. And this is all part of like the 2005 bankruptcy amendments. But so they make you do means testing, and it's and uh, it's basically it's basically your your average income over the past six months, and so you average it out, you multiply by twelve, and they compare that number to the median income for your household size and whatever state you live in. That's kind of how it works. If you're above it, you don't qualify. You have to do a thirteen. If you're below it, you qualify. You can do a seven. There's some other factors though too, right? I mean, if you I mean, obviously, if you have a big family, like eight kids, they're going to give you, they're going to allow you to have more income, right? Right. So then I'd have to look at the tables, obviously. Um, but yeah, like the, it, it's kind of weird. So it goes up to like the household size, like five. Then it, it, they've allocated the numbers up to the household five. Then after, once you start getting past five, they just tack on like an extra $7,000 a person kind of thing for it. But, but yeah, so the larger the household size, the more you're allowed to make and qualify for a bankruptcy. And then they also factor in if you live in a really expensive area like Jackson Hole, they'll factor in your cost of living too. Right, so that's the second half of the equation. So the first half of the equation is that they figure out what your income is relative to your household size for, for the state you live in. And if you're high, if you're above that income, then you go to the second part of this equation. The second part of the equation is, well, what are your expenses? And I didn't know this before 2005, it makes sense, but the bankruptcy code is borrowed from the IRS. And the IRS has, for audit purposes, has determined what it costs to live in every single county in the United States. And so the bankruptcy code borrows those numbers. And so, you know, you live in Jackson, it's more pricey. You live in, uh, well, you tell me. You, you, where, 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 where should I dig on in Wyoming? Jackson would be the place to take. Oh, you mean cheap? <laughs> right? <laughs> All the expenses. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 the second half of the equation is the counting where you live. And like the bankruptcy code is borrowed from the IRS, what their audit standards are. And you know, if you live in a more expensive county, they will allot you higher expenses. So you can still take deductions off your income and still qualify for seven based on where you live. Um, yeah. 
and then and then also too like often sometimes you'll see someone who's a, makes a decent living but they have like this massive child support payment for example and that counts as a valid deduction off of the income as well what about things like car payments and stuff i would assume that a reasonable one is allowed but you probably can't do your 1100 dollars a month after payment you yeah, so now it's so all i mean that depends right so now you're kind of getting into an area of law that's sort of unfair because because the means test and congress created it i have no issues with i have you know i don't want to rip on judges but I have no issues with ripping on Congress, right? I mean, the means test. Now, I was even, I even worked in the Senate after college when this, the first round of this 2005 amendment was kind of making its way through. And no one, I can tell you from personal experience that no one in the office I worked for had any idea what that legislation meant. I, I didn't know what it meant. I mean, I was just fresh from college. It's something about bankruptcy. And then I, pro- I started practicing bankruptcy, and also the law changes, and I realize I actually understand what the practical effects were. It's ridiculous, um, but yeah. So, so Congress didn't think it through clearly, but so yeah. So, so yeah. So secured debts can count as um, as valid deductions. So you have your eleven hundred dollar truck payment, and that counts as a valid deduction. But you might draw an objection from someone and say, "Listen." That's not going to be okay. You need this is an abusive system. You need to this is this isn't going to be okay. But but here's what's frustrating about it is that sometimes, let's say the the, the housing allowance for rent, for example, is a thousand dollars a month, but you've got a mortgage payment of twenty five hundred dollars a month. So you and, and maybe you overbought, right? And so maybe there's loose credit. You overbought, and so all your money is going to this twenty five hundred dollar mortgage payment. In some ways. You well, you can you you could legitimately deduct that twenty five hundred dollar a month mortgage payment, and so in some ways it's kind of rewarding the person who wasn't living frugally, who overbought and overspent, and just just secured their debt kind of thing. And so it's it's not in some ways it's kind of not very fair. It usually works out okay, but in some ways it's not very fair. It definitely can be unfair. I mean, I saw it applied unfairly to people who were very frugal, and then yes, people who tend to have a lot of secured debts. Uh, keep a lot of well but i guess they also leave with the payments also they do but here's the thing is that they may leave with the payments but don't forget the bankruptcy has wiped out their personal obligation and so so it's not uncommon or it's not unheard of to both double negatives but both to uh have someone so so you keep your you keep your your ford raptor I keep saying Ford Raptor because that's like that's like my dream truck. Those things are awesome. It's my dream truck too. Yeah. So, um, so someone, so one of my clients is driving my dream dream truck. You're right. It's always it's always frustrating when my clients come in with my dream truck, my dream house, where they make more money than I do. Right. You know, which is fine. But there's so one of my clients is driving my dream truck, and uh, and uh, and they decide to keep it. But then you know what? Six months after the bankruptcy, the you know what? They have the they have the moment. They, I can't I can't pay for this anymore. They can just go turn it in, and they're not liable for the deficiency balance because the bankruptcy has wiped out their personal obligation on that loan. As long as they haven't reaffirmed the debt, and that's maybe probably more detailed. But we don't tell our clients largely to reaffirm their debts, and so and they keep these cars. So the, the debt still attaches to the asset, but the debt no longer attaches to them. And so yeah, so yeah, they leave with the payments, but they can just walk from it later if they want. So they've got a bankruptcy, and they've walked these payments six months after the bankruptcy. So let's say somebody is in the situation where they do make 
too much money to file a Chapter 7, what is their option then if they still need to get some of their debts discharged? Well, if you make too much money, you have to do a Chapter 13. Well, you could always do a Chapter 11, but that's that's complicated. That's probably way beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. But you can do a Chapter 13. And Chapter 13 is it's a repayment plan. So it's a plan of reorganization. So people have heard about Chapter 11s for businesses. And I suspect we're going to hear a lot more Chapter 11 for businesses so. in the near future, especially the gyms and stuff like that. In fact, I heard right here, I heard 24, hour, 24 hours filing. No, no, no. What's 24 hours? I heard 24 hours filed. Needless markup filed. Yeah. Um, you know, Sears filed an 11, but that was pre-COVID. Yeah, but, just got sued for $66 million from Simon, by Simon Property Group because they just stopped paying the rent. Is that, well, you know, <laughs> that's, I mean, it happens to the best of us, right? It that's, does. <laughs> that's right. So we're going to see a lot of Chapter 11s. But so Chapter 11s are typically for biz, big businesses um, and then, you know, very wealthy individuals. Um but chapter 13 is like the consumer version of a chapter 11. It's much less complicated and it's a five, it's a five year repayment plan. And the idea, like the 30,000 foot view of a chapter 13 is that you pay back a percent of your debts. Some cases you pay back hundred percent of your debts. That's rare. Um, well, I, you know, someone did a study years ago and I have no idea if these numbers are so good, but I think the average is anywhere from 20 to 30% when they did the study of what you pay back. And so, because it's a, if the idea is that you've got a little bit of money, but not enough money. So you, so if you paid back the, if you paid back the five hundred bucks a month or whatever you afford, you'd be paying that back till you're sixty years old. So they just cap that at five years. And so the creditors get something, but you still get your, you still get your discharge after the five years is up. What about during that five years? What if say you need a new vehicle, your car just uh, stops running? Can you do that when you're in a Chapter Thirteen? You can. Common question. I mean, is five a lot can happen in five years? And so, right, you can get a new car. You typically have to get permission from the Chapter 13 trustee. And as long as the car payment is roughly the same as what it was, they're not going to care. Um, another question that comes up in a Chapter 13 is, what happens if I lose my job? You know, kind That's of a great thing. question. What happens? Yeah, I mean, and the answer is, the answer is when someone called me yesterday, hey, I lost my job because I'm in the middle of chapter 13 and I can't work. Neither can my wife work because no one can go to the office and she's been downsized and all this other stuff. The answer is, look, don't make your payment. Wait three months. And then when the chapter 13 trustee gives us a phone call or files a motion to dismiss, I'm going to call you back. I'm going to say, where are you at? Did you get a job yet? And if the answer is no, we can convert them to a seven. And if the answer is yes, then what we can do is we can just modify their plan and then we can just call for zero payments for the for the prior three months and then just, just slot those into the new plan. What if, say, the opposite happens? What, let's say someone gets a big raise and they don't want to be stuck in a 13. Can they, can, how, can they pay their way out of it? No. Well, yes and no. And so, so any extra disposable income you get in the 13 needs to be paid into the plan. Now we're not talking like your cost of living increases. No one really cares about your 2% cost of living raise you got last year because presumably everything else went by, up by 2%. Nobody really cares. If you got a significant bonus or you get a new job, you're supposed to call your lawyer and tell them you got a great new job and then that extra money is going to chapter 13. I don't know if anyone has ever called me and told me that. You know, and so, you know, 
if they do call and tell me that, I, I'm going to be honest with you, we got to, we got to amend, you know, and then if they don't want to do it, I'll just have to withdraw from the case, you know, because it, that would be fraud on the court. Um, but I think the, 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 the question that you may have been asking is what happens if you get a windfall in your chapter 13? And so like, say for example, what happens if, what happens if you file bankruptcy on day one, you get your confirmed plan like on month three, and then you get into a car wreck on month four, and you get a massive settlement, you know, in month 40, right? And so, and so, and, and say that settlement is exempt. It's a personal injury proceeds. So say that money is exempt. So you got $200,000, it's exempt. Then the question comes in, well, can I, what happens at $200,000? Do so I have to put it into the bankruptcy? Can I keep it because it's exempt? Like, how does that work? And traditionally, the answer is, is it is it depends. And typically, what we would do is we would just negotiate a deal with the trustee. And no, but there's actually been a recent case that came out. And I don't know by the time someone's listening to this if that case has been appealed or what. But the new case that's come out says, nope, any extra windfall you get in a thirteen, regardless if it's exempt, it goes into the plan. Wow, that's what it says. But I would hope that they would let you pay your medical bills and things like that out of the settlement. Yeah, they, they didn't have insurance. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, council, PI council is going to get paid. You know, that's um, very important. It, it is. But um, PI council going to get paid. The liens, you know, the post petition liens, medical liens are going to get paid. But then the windfall to the debtor is, depending on the trustee you draw, is going to get pulled into the plan. So that would be probably especially true for something like an inheritance. Thing. Inheritance is a big one, right? Yep, that's right. Yep, if you get, if you have someone dies, it goes into bankruptcy. Because that is not exempt, right? Inheritance is not exempt. It's just, but I guess it's a question though. It's a question though of when you get it. And so now you're kind of getting into the weeds a little bit for or the trees for the forest, you know? Because in a chapter thirteen, if you get an inheritance at any time during your chapter thirteen plan, you can expect to lose that. But in a chapter seven. It's all based on the filing date. So if you file a case on, you know, June 1st and the person, you know, passes away on June 2nd, then it goes to the Chapter 7 estate. But if 180 days passes after your filing and then, you, then that person passes away, then you get all that money. So it's a six-month limit in a Chapter 7, whereas Chapter 13 is the entire plan. So you just got to look at the drop. Yeah, it's, it is. It is. You know, but but here, here's the thing. Like you have to, you also have to approach it another way too. Like, so like, like we're having this, we're having that conversation on from a debtor's perspective. But if you think about it from a creditor's perspective, it's, it's kind of a fair rule because, you know, listen, the person's filing bankruptcy because they have no money. They, they, they have no money and they're going to get sued and they're going to get garnished. It's going to screw up their entire life. There's going to be liens on their houses and no one in society wants that. Like we as a society, if you're, that's a bad thing. It doesn't really do good for the family. We have enough problems as it is. And so they get the protection of a bankruptcy and then they get a windfall and really shouldn't that money have gone to their debts anyways, you know? And so it's kind of, so you, you get the protection of the bankruptcy, you get a windfall, you pay for debt. Maybe there's a little bit left for you, but you're whole. Everybody's whole and the laws work well for everybody. Definitely. And then, uh, besides uh, helping people file bankruptcy, you also work as a trustee. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as a trustee? Yeah, so I'm the guy who, who 
So in addition to doing debtor work, I also do some trustee work. I also do some credit work. And so, you know, the guy who sells the house and sells the car and stuff like that, like that's me. And so most people are pretty reasonable about it, but I've gotten some threats. My favorite threat I ever got was from this guy's, this is this lady's husband. And he called up and left, you know, a five, 10 minute rambling message. But the, the, the gist of the message was, he called, himself, he called himself like a shaman or something like that. And he was issuing curses against me for the afterlife. So he wasn't gonna let me cross over. Wow. <laughs> he wasn't gonna let me cross over. Um, I, I forgot, I saved it. I saved it because I thought it was a good one. Um, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> but yeah, he wasn't gonna let me cross over and he's cursed me and he just wanted to let me know. And the reason why he was so mad was because his wife had, had not disclosed her oil and gas interests. And I found out about them. I don't know how I, how, I think my paralegal is amazing. So she does a bunch of digging and found it. And I was like, I said that I, I, I kind of ambushed her in the 341. I, in some ways, it's kind of fun doing that. And especially when I know they're lying. And then she got the big eyes and started squirming a little bit. I mean, all the body language was there. She was just a big fat liar. And her, her lawyer withdrew quickly after that because she hadn't told, told anybody, right? And so wow. I totally ambushed her. And so he was threatening my my existence in the afterlife because I caught his wife in a lie under oath federal crime and I'm I'm the bad guy so explain to our listeners who don't really understand who the trustee represents what a 341 meeting is and why you would go to the trouble of finding those assets so all right and so there's there's that old saying in law if uh was it a, a great lawyer, a good lawyer knows the law, a great lawyer knows the judge kind of thing? Right. Heard that? <laughs> yeah. And so it's especially it, in Texas. Yes, right? Finances their campaign in Texas. <laughs> That's true. Um, and so and so I so there's a similar adage in bankruptcy. It's like a decent lawyer knows the law, a good lawyer knows the judge, a great lawyer knows the trustee. Because there's three parties in a the bankruptcy. There's the there's the debtor, there's the creditor, then there's the trustee. And so the trustee isn't all, you know, all all the the om, omnis, omnificent omniscient being omniscient. Thank you. The omniscient being right. You know, like the judge still oversees this stuff, but the trustee has been granted powers by Congress to investigate the debtor's assets to make sure they're telling the truth. And then the trustee is a person that then liquidates those assets for the benefit of the creditor. So the trustee doesn't work for a single creditor. Although sometimes you get big creditors in there that think the trustee works for them. So we have to have that conversation early typically. But the trustee represents the, the bankruptcy estate. Like the, the, the thing that's created when the, the case is filed, this estate. And the trustee is looking out for the best interest of the estate. And frankly speaking too, I mean, Trustees are neutral parties. They don't really care. I mean, and honestly, it, most most debtors are honest and unfortunate, and trustees will step in and sometimes they'll, they'll pull the reins in on some aggressive creditor coming in. I mean, they'll, and they'll refer a creditor fraud to the U.S. trustee. Like, it's not all anti-debtor. Like, they'll make sure debtor. They'll make sure the the integrity of the system is 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 there. Right? Is is not breached. Um. So, but largely the trustees. Biggest responsibility is to find non-exempt assets, liquidate those, and give them to the creditors. 
that's what the trustee's job is. And most debtors are okay with it because they voluntarily signed up for bankruptcy and they know there's going to be consequences. Usually it's the creditors are the ones that are most aggrieved. Like, I'm only getting how much and I'm owed how much kind of thing. It's like, look, that's how that works, man. Well, and as a trustee, you get paid on a percentage that so you're incentivized to find things like hidden oil and gas. That's right. That's right. And it's, you're right, it's a sliding scale percentage. It's a sliding scale percentage. But yeah, so you get paid 60 bucks a case right now. Like there's a bill, there's there's been a bill pending in Congress to increase that for probably about a decade now. It's pretty low. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, why well, that doesn't even that doesn't even pay for a paralegal. Like, I mean, if that was all I got per case, I would not be a trustee. I like it's just 60 it barely covers my gas to get to the courthouse, you know. Um, um and then you get a percent of what you find and you give to the creditors so that's and how so you make how it. does that percentage work then um you know honestly i mean I, I can tell you the straight face i don't have the sliding scale memorized just because it, like some trustees care about it a lot more than i do you know and, you, and you're not supposed to care about it okay. right you know right. but uh the first five thousand is 25 percent, and then it goes down to 15 percent um percentage for the amount of five thousand up to like 15,000. And then that's when I started. And it goes after that from 15 to 40,000, it goes down like 5%. Anything over 100,000, you get 3% on. Yeah. So that's. So it's there. definitely, I mean, if you find some hidden oil and gas, this, well, that could make your year almost. It can, but here's the thing it's not uncommon that you'll have, I'll find some hidden oil and gas leases, and um, someone has like, $30,000 credit card debt, and then I'll sell those oil and gas leases for $100,000. My commission is based on what I pay. Not, oh. It's only paid based on the creditor. So if someone's only got $20,000 of debt, my commission is based on $20,000. And then I just and then I just write a check back to the debtor, say, hey, I sold your oil and gas interest for you. Here's your cut. Right. You know, but, you know, whatever. I mean, that's got to be pretty rare, isn't it? It's rare. It, it's 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 rare. You have hundred percent distributions. So, kind uh, of give our listeners an overview of what the three forty one meeting is and what happens there. So that's the meeting of creditors, and I won't go into the history of it. Um, it's 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 sometimes known as the first meeting of creditors, and that's because there used to be multiple meeting of creditors, but there's only one meeting of creditors now. So I guess technically it is the first one also the only one but essentially before COVID-19 you would go to a room and it's usually either in the courthouse somewhere or the U.S. trustee has rented the federal government has rented an office somewhere and it's just a hearing room and you go in and you know they do it they do it different in different jurisdictions like y'all go to these national conventions and you talk to someone from California or Texas or Louisiana it's just it's fascinating to hear how they do it down there. But at least out here in the West is that you go in a room, they dock it, you know, roughly four to six cases every half hour. And so it gives you, you know, five minutes roughly per case. And you ask these swear in, you ask them questions, and then you just go over the schedules. And sometimes there's something there, sometimes there's nothing there. And you have a nice day. And that's pretty much it. And so by and large, by and large, um, that is most people's experience with the bankruptcy system. Is this a hearing room with a trustee who's asking them some questions, and then depending on the demeanor of the trustee, you know, they come out, they come out okay. They always come out okay. Nice. And 
as a trustee, you've got to see, in a non-joking sense, good, okay, and probably some piss-poor debtors' attorneys. And what are the biggest mistakes that you see debtors make who hire poor attorneys? Jeez, it's so true. I had, I had no idea that the quality of people out there like before I became a trustee in fact I think my work quality went down after I became a trustee just because I realized how good of a job I was doing and how little that really mattered when compared to the rest of the bar wow I I mean that's not true but like like I worked really hard and did my best and really made sure all my I's were dotted and T's were crossed things like that and then all of a sudden you see the stuff that some of these people can get away with it's ridiculous but that's they're sloppy and they're lazy and and I mean I, I make I make so much money because there's bad attorneys out there and so that's great I love bad attorneys because they don't do any pre-bankruptcy planning they don't care about their clients they don't give them good advice they just burn and churn them in right and so so some of these clients who are looking to go to uh, the cheapest attorney they can who's going to be one of the support attorneys tell me what bad things can happen to that client if they hire the attorney that doesn't care about them? And that's honestly, so so that was actually your question, is, is not not me sitting here pontificating about my personal experience. Your question was about, about like how to protect the person who's finding a good lawyer, right? And so, I mean, so some mistakes that they're made, right? So like, you don't want to skimp on price. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, there are some attorneys out there who think they're amazing and they will charge arm and leg for a simple bankruptcy and they're not that amazing you know but you know you, you really don't want to skip on price like if you if you're shopping for price then you're probably not going to find someone that's going to care about you or take the extra time to do their job because they can't stay in business or make any money doing bankruptcy for 600 bucks or 800 bucks or even a thousand dollars you can't answer many phone calls for a thousand dollars before it starts becoming unprofitable for these people um, so price is one thing to look at another thing to look at is you know, the office staff, you know, trust your gut. You know, I don't know about you, but I've always found that people tend to hire attorneys kind of like them, you know? Sure. And so you trust your gut. And if you don't like the person, you go to somebody else. I mean, you make sure they answer your questions and you do multiple, just like get a second opinion, right? You know, just like get a second opinion for a medical case, get a second opinion for a bankruptcy attorney, right? Price it out. So, and then, then go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. So when you're saying that the, these bad attorneys make lots of money for you as a trustee, I'm assuming that's because their clients are there for forfeiting assets to you that they shouldn't have to. And that's exactly right. So I mean, I just give you an easy example of the case I'm dealing with now. So this middle law firm, the attorney's a nice guy. I get along with them, you know? I mean, I would never hire him for anything, but obviously. But so he filed this bankruptcy and, you know, he didn't ask the right questions. And so this nice little lady comes in She's renting a, renting an apartment, but she has a house that he didn't ask her about that her son is living in. She owns this house. And so I'm like, so I have you own this house? She's like, oh yeah, but my but my my well, my grandson lives in this house. I say, well, who owns it? Well, I do. I'm like, well, I don't really care who lives there. I care who owns the house, right? But she didn't kind of she didn't think that house was was hers because she didn't live there. And this attorney. He's just kind of looking around like, what? This is, I mean, that's like, that's like the first thing you ask a client when they come in, like, do you own anything? And then you, and then the thing is that you listen to what the client says. 
And when you hear what the client is telling you, you can ask a follow-up question, not just go down your, down your list and check off the boxes. And so long story short, I've been talking to the grandson. He doesn't have anywhere to go. But this, this woman should never file bankruptcy. She was judgment-proof. And oh, wow. Yeah, she was judgment-proof. I mean, and, and now I'm going to sell the house, uh, pay off her creditors, and you know, I'll probably actually give her a little bit of money back because there's like, there's like $200,000 in equity in this house that she owns, tons of land. And I'm going to evict her grandson who works at Walmart. All because she hired... All she because she had a crummy attorney who did not give good advice. It, that, that is just one example of so many, so many. I mean, I, you can't make this stuff up because there's bad lawyers. Well, I think one of the common things too that it, I'm not sure what the rule is in Colorado, but in Wyoming, tax returns are not exempt. So sometimes you'll get a client who's got a $5,000 tax return coming and the thing to do is to wait for them to get that tax exactly. return and yep. have them buy important things like clothes for their kids, you know, buy not buy exempt items or things that they really need, pay down that tax return. Because if you file that tax return before they, or you file the bankruptcy before they get the tax return, you could literally wipe out like $6,000. Yep. It just goes into the estate. Well, that's right. And so from a trustee's perspective, that's great. Because I just pay 25% of, you know, 6,000 bucks kind of thing, an easy case. But, but here's what's frustrating as a trustee, I'll tell you, is that, you know, so the fact pattern is someone files bankruptcy on January 15, for example, and they've got, then they file their taxes on February 1, and then we go to, we do our 341 meeting at the end of February, and by, by in, between the time of filing and the 341, they file their taxes, they've got their tax return, and they've already spent it on something else. But that was property to bankruptcy estate because they hadn't received it by the time they filed bankruptcy. So I'll sit there and say, oh, you've got $6,000 back. Where is it? Why well, spent it? I'm like, okay, you weren't allowed to spend it. And they kind of look at me like, what? Like this is the first time, this is the first time they're hearing anything about a tax return. And then they look at their attorney and the attorney just kind of sits there like deer in the headlights. And then I say, well, you need to pay it back to me. Well, actually, I don't, I don't want to pay it back to you. I'm like, you don't have to pay it back to me. I'm just going to revoke your discharge if you don't pay it back to me. You choose, kind of thing. And then they get all upset, and then like they just, they're just outraged. I have to do this, and the lawyer's like, "We'll talk about it later." Well, you know, the thing you should have done is you should have waited to file a bankruptcy until April, until they appropriately spent that money. You're right on new tires for the cars, or you know, braces for the kids, or something like that. You know, like meaningful things. Do appropriate pre-bankruptcy planning. Is you don't want to do too much pre-bankruptcy planning, but, but appropriate bank, pre-bankruptcy planning, you save all that money. It's just, well, it's crummy. It's crummy for the debtor, you know? Well, it's, it's really disgusting to, you know, you see a situation where an attorney is gonna lie to the client later, and that's why they need them to talk yep. about it later instead of in front of yes, the trustee. Yes, exactly right. that's exactly right. We'll talk about it later. They put their hand over, you know, and it's kind of, gently pat the table reassuringly and we'll talk about it later. and you know the conversation later and actually you know sometimes i'll walk out in the hallway to, you know so i'm taking a break in between dockets and i try not to listen to it you know and i but i can't i kept my hands over my ears the whole time and i'll kind of hear what they're telling their clients and like ah, like they're just they're just like making excuses and lawyers like lawyers are persuasive like that's their job to be persuasive and they're they just like tell these clients like mostly the truth like it's it's the trustee's fault. Like it's never their fault. It's just it's just you're right. Yeah, they, you know, talk about later means I'll lie to you later about it. 
when the tragic thing is, is the things that we're talking about right now are, are things that any competent bankruptcy attorney has on their checklist and make sure do yes. not happen in any case. Yes. And that's just the low hanging fruit too. I mean, there's even like, and we're just talking low hanging fruit for normal cases. Like it's not uncommon that you get some more complicated issues like lien issues on cars and then maybe owning a house for like estate planning purposes with grandma kind of thing. Cause grandma puts you on you and all your siblings on the house. Like, like, like the incompetent attorney doesn't even go into those issues. Like they're, they're losing like the easy taxes, let alone not talking about like complicated lien and, you know, good faith transfer issues, things like that. So you got to find a comp attorney. You typically, so getting back to your original question, you typically, I would say you typically want to go with someone with experience. Uh, the tough one though, because that doesn't mean that someone who's brand new isn't good. Um, in fact, oftentimes new attorneys are the better attorneys to get just because they're hungry and they were working really hard. They're trying to establish a career. And sometimes it's the old, the old dogs who are just tired and sick of it. They don't care anymore kind of thing. But I think experience matters. Someone who does, I don't want to disparage some of the guys that don't do seven and 13s, but you know, I've always kind of felt that you should at least do chapter sevens and chapter 13s. You know, you should, I mean, it's one thing not to do chapter 11s because 11s are hard and complicated, very, very expensive. But, very rare in Wyoming. Right. I mean, you still have gas 11s, I'm sure. Right. Um, well, especially soon. Right. right. Um, but, you know, you got to be able to do 7 and 13s. You have to understand, like, how what, what the client's options are. Someone who does, you know, maybe someone who's done some creditor work, things like that. You know, I just want someone who's done some experience. Whoever you feel most comfortable with. Reviews. Check reviews. But, right. you know. Views can be fake. Right. You know, I, I know a guy who just pays his friends to write reviews kind of thing for his website. So they're not live and die for. For sure. And then one of the things I'd like to kind of finish up talking about is just the heightened importance of the debtor being honest when they're in the bankruptcy process and the potential consequences of being dishonest and yeah, like, so that's, I mean, that's, that's huge because bankruptcy relies tremendously on the debtor's forthrightness. Like the system could not function without the debtor being honest. Um, because there's just being, you know, 20,000 cases a year, 30,000 cases a year in Colorado. I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what they are nationwide, but I mean, there's not enough people to do like an extensive background check on every debtor to make sure that they're honest. Even the trustees, I mean, we do five cases every half an hour. Like there's only so much that we can do as well. So, so much relies on the debtor's honesty. And because of that, the consequences of dishonesty are pretty dire. I mean, it's a federal crime. You can get fined a lot of money. You can even go to jail. Um, I remember there was this cop. This is the story I always tell my clients and they say, can I just transfer my condo to my brother? Or how will they ever know? You know that, just between you and me. Yeah, just between you. I love it. Just this is this is this is this is confidential, right? It's confidential. I'm not going to say anything, you know. But but I'm not going to let you hire me, kind of thing. Once you told me this, um, but yeah, just between you and me, I love that. Um, yeah. So there's this cop in Breckenridge. This was probably 10, 15 years ago. She has this Jeep, and it was worth. It was a Jeep running. It was worth like five, six grand some some small amount but she didn't want to lose her jeep and so she didn't list on the schedules and someone someone turned her in i don't know no one knows this day who turned her in because it was all anonymous it's probably another cop is what it was you know, it was, you know 
most police are typically honest and they want that to be upheld. And so um, someone turned her in and she kept lying about it. So she had transferred this Jeep to her sister before she filed because she didn't want to lose it. She kept lying about it. Well, long story short, she ended up in jail for five years and got slapped with like a $750,000 fine and is obviously no longer a cop for a like $5,000 Jeep. It's unreal. And you know, you were my mentor when I started doing bankruptcy work and I tell that story too. And I think it just sets the tone perfectly. And I think it is a higher standard for, um, you know, a law enforcement officer. And I know there was a county prosecutor in like Carbon County, Wyoming, who lied about his sales tax on like Harley bought to try and avoid paying 1200 bucks <laughs> and that and he's disbarred and went to jail for yeah. a while. But I mean, even if people don't go to jail, they can still get a massive fine and there's a real chance that you can go to jail if you lie in bankruptcy. Yeah, you can. Like, and especially in some of the doing trustee cases. I mean, I've done at this point in time probably at least ten thousand Chapter Seven cases as a trustee. That's amazing. Yeah, and so you see, and I mean, honestly, I'm one of the newer ones too. Like, I'm like the second newest. Like, some of these guys have been doing it for like 30, 40 years. They've done fifty thousand cases, and but you know, I've been, I've, I mean, I've, I've spoken. I, I know it's legit because I have spoken with people in in the FBI who are assigned to their bankruptcy crimes unit. And they've called me and asked me for information and said, and I, then I asked them for information, but the sharing only goes one way. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give me right. anything, right. you know, they just want some for me, which is fine. I mean, it's kind of my job as a trustee to help them out, you know, but yeah. Cool, and so the last thing I would like to let the listeners know is kind of, and kind of got an overview of the 13 process, but if you could talk about how the process uh, bankruptcy process works Cohen and Cohen for someone filing a seven how much time does it take and then when does the debtor's life go back to quote unquote normal so the answer like most legal answers is going to be it, it depends or it depends on the client um, the essential process is, is once you retain a bankruptcy attorney you're going to stop using you're going to stop paying your credit card she's might, might as well just take $100 bills and throw them out your window at that point in time just wasting your money so stop using stop paying get your lawyer paid and most attorneys i think in fact every single bankruptcy attorney i've ever known has a has some sort of packet so the one upon retention you get a packet and in the packet it's a very comprehensive list of like what do you own it's a bunch of questions you know the packet's thick and it's big but honestly 90 percent of it doesn't apply to most people so you just put any on most of it so you fill out the packet you pay the lawyer the lawyer drafts it up and then you just set a finalization meeting, a signing meeting, and then we just go over page by page, which, by the way, is another thing that bad attorneys do. I can't tell you how many times I ask someone, did you read everything? I don't know. Okay. Did you sign everything? I didn't sign anything. I was like, well, your e-signature is right here. Well, I didn't sign a thing. It's like, all right. Well, I can't conduct this meeting of creditors now, you know, because you haven't read anything or signed anything. I don't know who did this. And then, uh, that's another story. But, um, but at least here, we make sure people sign off on it and actually know what they're filing. Because ultimately, it's their, it's their bankruptcy. You know, we just, we just made it look nice for them. And we've issue spotted for them to help them tell the story the right way. And, you know, file a case. And you go to court in 30 days. And then your discharge, you go to the 341 in, 90, in 30 days. Then your discharge is going to enter, you know, roughly 90 to 100 days after filing. Assuming no one objects on the basis of fraud or whatever. But that is exceedingly rare. And, you tip 99% of the time you can tell a client like upfront, yeah, we're going to file the case. 
you can wipe out all your credit card debt, but you're almost certainly going to draw an objection because this guy sued the state both fraud or whatever, and it's probably going to continue in bankruptcy court. And so for most debtors, would you say that, you know, after, right immediately after they file, their life is kind of back to normal in some sense? Yeah, it's usually the three, the, at the conclusion of the 341 is typically when they're, when they feel back to normal. It's not actually back to normal until the discharge enters for them. But like that's the the final like material step that they have to take. The rest of it's just waiting, and for the for the ninety days to pass. And so you file the case, you feel good, you get the bankruptcy protection, the automatic stay is entered. No one's calling you anymore. You know you got to, you go to court. Everyone's nervous about it, which is totally fine. Like I was nervous first time I went to court. I'm still nervous when I go to court. You know, I'm nervous when I go to court. <laughs> that's right. You, you know? usually bring a toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> and no. Right, so you, you get out of there, you realize, like, you look around, you hear the other stories of people, and you don't feel as alone anymore, because everyone comes in, they always feel alone, because, you know, the people, so many people file bankruptcy. Like, my own, like, really poor attorney math was, like, one in six people in Colorado has filed for bankruptcy. And so, but no one talks about it, which, by the way, is it makes it really tough to get business, because, you know, attorneys, we rely a lot on referral business. Right. But no one's going to go to the next party and say, huh. Let me tell you how great my bankruptcy attorney was, right. you know? <laughs> and so, and so, but yeah, but, like, but you know, they realize that they're not alone. This is very common. There are people in there that are worse off than they were, you know, like it could be so much worse. They walk out, they feel good about it. And, you know, even if there's some small non-exempt assets, like, for example, Colorado guns are a big one. Say they'd say they're a big gun family and they got a bunch of guns are worth 3000 bucks. Well, the trustee will let you buy that stuff back. I mean, the trustee doesn't want your stuff. They just want the money. And so, right, guns are worth $3,000. You get $3,000 from the trustee, keep your guns, creditors get $3,000, and you walk away from $40,000 of that. You take that return on investment any day of the week, you know? And win win. Yeah, that's right. Great. Thanks a bunch, Rob. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. Yeah.